invite you all to turn to John's Gospel, the fourth Gospel. We're in chapter 6. Last week we covered the feeding of the 5,000 and we learned a lot. We had nine different principles that we came away with that we were able to extrapolate from the text as we were going through it. And I hope all of that was uh, helpful to you and that you made it a matter of your review from time to time. You can find the PDF, of course, on Sermon Audio if you care to get those notes or just ask one of us. We'd be glad to send them to you. So this morning we're looking at the fifth sign. The fifth. This is John's fifth sign that makes it clearly evident that this man, Jesus, is in fact very God, that he is the son of God, positionally, that he is the Messiah, the Redeemer, the expected one, the anointed one, the one who they were filled with expectation to come. And he's begun chapter six the way he began chapter five with a spectacular miracle. Uh, In that case, in chapter five, it was a healing. And from there, he went on to a very profound, powerful discourse to prove who he is. In chapter 5, he's spending much time and effort on the whole concept of him being one with the Father, which, of course, in verse 18, made it clear that they, for that statement and that claim, want to kill him. So it's the same here. It's the same sort of format. There's a. This is the greatest miracle. It's the only miracle outside of the resurrection itself that is reported in all four Gospels. And so we're looking at it here, this feeding of the 5,000. Actually, the text says 5,000 men. So we can assume that with women and children, as Matthew's rendition of it uh, uh, discloses, that there could be anywhere clearly north of 15,000, maybe 20,000 and more. So there's tens of thousands of people gathered here. Jesus does something remarkable. He does something ex nihilo. He creates out of nothing food for tens of thousands of people. It's it's undeniable. And yet we find out in our text that the disciples still didn't understand what that meant, which is hard for us to fathom. But I guess we could have we should we would have had to have been there uh, to to understand why they misunderstood what that meant. It's so clear to us, but we uh, have the rest of Scripture, so we already understand and believe who Jesus is as the Son of God and the Son of Man, the Redeemer who has come to take away the sin of the world. So this is who we have. We're looking at verse 16 to 21, where Jesus follows up that amazing miracle, a miracle where you not only have tens of thousands of spectators, they are also participants because they're eating, they're consuming the food that Jesus is producing out of nothing. So from there, he goes up onto a mountain to pray. We're going to synthesize the two. The, it's also reported in this particular uh, miracle, him walking on water is also reported in Matthew chapter 14 and Mark 6. It's not in Luke's account. So we're going to look at that. This follows, of course, the uh, feeding of the 5,000, which we ended last time with verse 15, where Jesus, they misunderstood again. They want to take him by force to make him king. And so he leaves. Verse 16 to 21. 
When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land, at the land to which they were going. Father, we thank you so much for this account. As though we haven't been completely impacted and impressed with what you've done already in the first four clear signs, the miracles from chapter 2 and the turning the water into, the, into wine and all of where we find ourselves now, and we're only six chapters into this gospel. It's so clear to us, Lord, because you would have a person receive every opportunity to see who you are. Indeed, these words wouldn't make it down to our laps 2,000 years later if any of this were not true. It happened. Especially since there are some 20,000, perhaps, witnesses. It would have been refuted handily and tossed out. We thank you for that bit of providence that oversees your scriptures to bring the full canon into our lives that we can know from one end to the other who you are and what our faith is all about. And we find our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as we see him now yet doing something beyond remarkable. It's actually staggering to the eyes to see. It, it so defies what we understand to be the natural order of things as you created it. So help us now to receive all of what you would have us receive from this great act here walking on the water, that you would be glorified in our lives is our greatest objective. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So... I may have mentioned this when we first started out John's Gospel, but there aren't any parables in John's Gospel. But there are miracles. And I want you to understand something, and that is that the, you could refer to the miracles that we have in John's Gospel as parabolic miracles. Our song leader mentioned this morning something of the, the metaphor that we can see in these things, the metaphor we see in the songs we sing in that case, and the metaphor we see in the miracles as they take place. This is actually a principal key to you understanding them. That is, their, their point in this finding its way into your life. More than a story. Oh, it's a story. It's the truth. We believe it. This, these aren't allegories, as some of the higher critics might say, the liberals of these texts might say, well, this is impossible, so it's an allegory. It's like Pilgrim's Progress. These weren't real things. No, we believe in the literal version of what the Bible has to say. We believe in it literally. So these things took place. But there's also, we need to, we would miss the full understanding of these things if we didn't look at these miracles metaphorically. Thousands of people 
are empty and hungry. They assemble, they come to a man who can feed them. You see not only the reality of what took place that day, but I'm sure you see the metaphor. There's a spiritual connection there. There's something that they need from Christ besides bread and fish physically. So there's these kinds of metaphors all the way through. Our life is something of a seafaring voyage. In fact, the Old Testament will use the sea and and a voyage as a metaphor quite often. We see it in the New Testament as well. These are real things that happened in real time in history. They're not a story, as I said. We see that storms blow up. In this case, we see the the people, the disciples in this case, who are terrified, and they ought to be. They're seeing something unnatural, something that could only belong to divinity. There is no other human being on the planet that can walk on water. As a matter of fact, we use that as something of an expression casually. When we are impressed by someone, you know, you'd think they walk on water because this is this is like the ultimate impressive act of Jesus. But if you think about it, it's not that impressive when you realize that he's the one that created nature. Every drop, every molecule that's in that water, he created. The tides of the sea, the sun and the moon, how all of these things coordinate everything in perfect orchestration and harmony so that we would have life here. He can put pause to that, can he? He can walk on the sea as though he were walking on the ground. Wasn't God able to do that in the Old Testament? He stood the seas up on each side. You'd think there'd be just nothing but a bunch of mud and dead fish down there. But somehow... It was navigable. They were able to walk across that. So he dried it up. Whatever he did, they were, the, Israel was able to walk as they were, as it tells in Exodus. We don't want to miss the metaphors here, though. We believe that these things are true and real. We don't question it. But if we just leave it there, we'll miss the full import, the full impact of what these, why these stories found their way into our laps 2,000 years later. We want to know what those matter. What difference does this make in my life is what I wanted to know. So they communicate. Parables communicate truth. And so do these miracles, just so we know. And we need to look carefully at these and ask the Lord to reveal them to us, lest we miss something from these spectacular events that are going on and just turn the next page of our Bible. So there's 71 verses in this chapter. It's a long chapter, and as I said, it starts with a miracle, just like chapter 5, and then it goes on into a discourse. He's about to get into the bread of life. He is the bread of life. There's your metaphor. Discourse that is going to rankle their feathers again. They're going to be upset with him again. As a matter of fact, it's quite sad what happens. If you want the uh, the spoiler here, you can look at the end of the story very quickly. Like, where does this end up? It's it's a long chapter. He feeds some 20,000 roughly people from nothing. 
He walks on the water. Verse 66 of our chapter. It's actually not only sad, it's heartbreaking. He does all of this, which proves his deity. And here's what we read. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Many. Many. Verse 67, so Jesus said to the twelve, and this, if this doesn't grip your heart, I wonder if you really know him. How was it for him to hear this when he said this? Do you want to go away as well? Is alone is something he's very, very well acquainted with, isn't he? People leaving his life here in droves, in thousands upon thousands, turn, walk away. Why? Why? Well, it comes after the discourse. Last time they, it's reported for us they wanted to kill him. This time it's the, the great rejection, you could say. The, the, the great abandonment of Christ. And this is early on. Six, verse 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? I don't know, maybe it's a sentimental part of me, but I'd like to hear him say, no, nah, we love you, Lord. We love you. I adore you. I want to follow you. But wait a minute. He did that before. He's going to do that later on, isn't he? (laughs) And what happens then? He denies him three times. Yeah, it just occurs to me. Maybe that's why that's not in there. Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life, verse 69, and we believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This arguably the most piercing, heartbreaking grief to God historically has been his own being rejected by his own people. These are his people that we're seeing in real life that are assembled there as the God-man. But what we look at when we see the Old Testament, Zephaniah 1.6 This defines it. Those who have turned back from following the Lord, who do not seek the Lord or inquire of him. I don't want to see him. I don't want to hear from him. I want to live my way. And when he got to that part of the discourse that really challenged me, I'm out. Later. Let me know if he's handing out bread again. I'll come back for that. Or Isaiah 22, 3 to 5. Listen to, I want you to look at God's heart here. This is the heart that's in Jesus at the time of the rejection. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they were captured. Without the bow, they weren't forced, they just ran. Didn't want conflict. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far away. All the leaders split. Therefore I said, look away from me. Let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. Look away. I don't want you to see me like this. 
This is heartbreaking. Or Jeremiah. That was going through Jeremiah while we were up in the mountains. Powerful, powerful prophecy. But in Jeremiah 8, 18 and 19 and verse 21, my joy is gone, he says through his prophet. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick within me. Behold the cry of the daughter of my people from the length and breadth of the land. Is the Lord not in Zion? This is what they're saying. Is her king not in her? Why have they provoked me to anger and their carved images and with their foreign idols? They prefer the world more than me. They want something else. They want to dial in their faith the way it's comfortable and attractive and approved by them. That's what they want. Verse 21, For the wound of the daughter of my people is my heart wounded. I mourn, and dismay has taken hold on me. Chapter 10 of Jeremiah 19 to 20, Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous. But I said, Truly, this is an affliction, and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone away from me. Almost like a parent who used to enjoy watching their children take care of the house. He was glad to be in the house together with his children. And they've left. The trappings of this house haunt me. They bring me to tears, weeping. My heart is broken. How about the rejection of Jesus? He's God. It doesn't stop. That's the point here in our text. It doesn't stop. Luke 19, 41 to 42. And when he drew near and saw the city, what did he do? Text says he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. You don't even know how to make peace now. Why? Because you turned away from me. You, you didn't, as Zephaniah said, you do not seek the Lord and you don't inquire of him. So you don't even know how to make peace. John sixteen thirty two. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. It's hard to care deeply about someone, invest your life in them as Jesus has, as God has through the history of his people. It's hard to do that, only to have them eventually walk away and abandon you. Ever happened to you? It's a, one of the more extreme, extremely hurtful moments of your life. Betrayal is, I mean, in my counseling ministry, it's one of the most difficult things to deal with. It's devastating to people. Nearly at that time, especially when you need them most. And it's not just Jesus, God. It's how about the abandonment of Paul, right? At the most difficult time in his life, he's facing execution, the time where he needs his friends and companions the most. Their support and companionship would have meant so much to comfort him as he's looking toward the end of his life while he's writing Second Timothy. 
nearly everyone had abandoned him by the time he writes Second Timothy. Even in the letter to the Philippian church, chapter 2, 19 and 20, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. (laughs) Wow. Wow. 2 Timothy 1.15, All who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phagellus and Hermogenes, Chapter 4, verse 10, he's getting to the close of his final letter and he will shortly be executed. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. They're all gone. Verse 16, at my first defense, no one, no one, came to stand by me. The Apostle Paul, after three full missionary trips and planting churches and bringing salvation to untold numbers of people in Asia Minor, and no one's there. Wow. But then he says, may it not be charged against them. Wow, what a godly attitude. One of the best things you can do if you've been betrayed and abandoned is to pray for the person that had done it. Is that easy to do? No. But it's very helpful to do that. So what I want to draw your attention to back in that John 6, the ending of our story there where the turn away from him. I don't know if you caught this or not, but it says in verse 66 of John 6, after this, many of his, what? Disciples. This is mathetes. This is a follower. This is a learner. These were disciples that turned away. They were part of the group. They were following. They had a history of following him. What in the world did he say, for goodness sake? That his followers, his committed, his loyal disciples turned their back and walked away. Well, we'll be seeing that as we get further into the text. Wow. They were disciples. There's no question about that. The text says it. So that people will turn away, that they're going to turn away and abandon Christ is not the question. They're going to. They do. They have. The question is, how can we prepare ourselves biblically so that we aren't devastated when it happens? Because it will happen, has happened, it's going to happen. Maybe it is happening right now in your life as you seek to follow Christ and others in your life as you do, as you make those commitments. Just drop like flies. They fall away. Why isn't so-and-so contacting me anymore? I don't see their posts on Facebook anymore. Did they defriend me? Is that what it's called, defriending? I don't know. I'm a boomer. I just don't see them anymore. They don't call on me anymore. 
No texts, nothing. They're gone. So that's not the question. But like I said, this can be one of the most devastating things to happen in a person's life who has chosen to be a true mathetes, a true follower of this rabbi, Jesus Christ, of this Savior. Have your life transformed, which shows you, and he does it incrementally by his grace. He does it bit by bit. Aren't you glad that he shows you that needs to go? That needs to go. You need to turn away from that place. You need to turn away from this one. Follow me. You can't follow me if you continue to go there, if you continue to hang out with them, if you continue to talk that way, if you continue to think the way that you're thinking, it gets more and more difficult, doesn't it? These choices we make to follow him, but we love him. And we say with Peter, if Christ were asking us, where else would we go? I was at the end of my tether. I had nowhere to go but death. And cried out to him. He answered that cry and he restored me, brought me to life. And now, so if you ask me that today, I'd say, where else would I go? I have no choice. You have the words of eternal life. So as you make that commitment, you continue to follow him. What will you do when the ones that get closer and closer to you are falling away? You could almost hear him saying, do you still love me? Do you still love me? Will you still follow me? Will you go away too? So we need to understand why people turn away. I've got a few reasons here for you. Um, If some things are like explained a little longer than you're a speedy note-taking can do. Don't worry about it. We can get this to you. Some of you take a picture with your phone. I'm fine with that. Whatever you want to do. But we need to understand why people turn away. First of all, as we're looking at our texts and we look at the biblical reasons why people are turning away from Christ, people lack the discernment to follow. The fact They lack the discernment to follow. So they follow what seems, I think this is, the sentence structure is wrong here. So they follow whatever seems impressive or whoever's popular. That's how you get the mega church. This is impressive. Why? Because it's big. And what else? Well, it's, there's a lot of people here. What else? You, do you know they had MacArthur here talking? Oh, okay, I'm on board. Or they've got so-and-so, the famous Christian singer is here. This is some of the criteria they use to go to a church. It's big. It's got people that look like me. They're in my demographic. I'm comfortable. My wife and I are young. We got little kids or we're older and we, or whatever. Or I'm a teenager. That's the criteria. So when they find out that that's not at a particular church, they leave. There are many reasons why people leave. They're impressed by Jesus. They're impressed by his miracles. It's made clear in uh, chapter 6 and verse 2, if you remember from last week, a large crowd was following him, and it says why. Because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Oh, that's why you're following. This is quite a show. This is amazing. You need to go to this church because there's this guy, and it's just um, you're not going to believe what he does. 
What does that have to do with the gospel and my need for Christ and the forgiveness of my sins? That's one of the reasons. They're impressed. Or they are following somebody's popular. Secondly, people are drawn by what they can gain. Verse 15 and 26. Verse 15. Remember, that's how where we finished last week. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force, by force, to make him king, Jesus withdrew again. So there's some perceptions that some people have of who Jesus is, and they're like, if, if he's not going to be that, I'm gone. In verse, look at verse 26. And Jesus himself says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, like the other people, but because you ate your fill. So it's the signs. It's the free lunch. It's the we can get healed. I bet you you and I could make a list a mile long for reasons why people leave a church that's dedicated to the things that the scriptures dedicate themselves to and go to another church. There's just too many to calculate. So they're drawn by what they can gain, but they turn away once there is a cost to them. That's a reference to the discourse that takes place. As soon as Jesus starts talking, then there's things that I'm like, okay, I'm not comfortable with that. And they're gone. They want to gain something. They want to gain something. Something that satisfies them. And third, this is the final one I have for you. We could go all day long on this list. But this is just what we see in our, in our accounts here. People follow until the teaching and accountability challenges them in ways they disapprove of. I go to this Reformed church. This Reformed church is awesome. You know, they, they believe in sovereign grace and all of this, and we're, we're growing in our understanding of the doctrines. Mm-hmm. What are God's intentions with his doctrines? Did you ever think of that? He doesn't care how much you know. He cares what you do with that knowledge. That knowledge has what Jonathan Edwards calls a transformational efficacy that should be going on. Are you being transformed? Are you realizing that these doctrines are meant to be efficacious, to impact you and change you? He doesn't want to make prideful scholars. He doesn't want any more armchair theologians. Please, we have enough of them. They're online constantly, and they're the experts. And it's like, what are you doing with all that theology, by the way? Did you know you're ratcheting up your responsibility now? Because with knowledge comes responsibility. Are you ready for that? You may not be ready. You might want to stand down from getting online. You might want to stand down from all the reading you're doing for just a minute. Until your willingness to change catches up. Hmm. Listen to what MacArthur said. He's contrasting what, pe- what draws people to bigger churches. Those people who call themselves Christians are disciples, right? A follower of Christ. No, a serious follower of Christ. But then he says this. Where you have a church of 75 people in a little building, people who pray together, 
and love the Lord and worship and sing hymns and somebody gets up and teaches the Word of God, they're not going to draw a crowd. He says it again. They're not going to draw a crowd. Because the only thing that would draw them is the love of the Lord, the love of the Word, and the love of God's people. But that's not what false disciples are interested in, end quote. This is what's happening here in John 6. That's what happened in chapter 5. We're going to see this all through the Gospels. Choose you this day. He wants you dead to yourself. Paul's not just dramatic when he says to the Galatian churches, you know, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and died for me. That's Paul. That's what got him through 2 Timothy, writing 2 Timothy. That's what made him able to face death is the commitment that he made. So, what is it then that would draw and keep a true disciple following Christ? I can give you that in a list of three. If that's really what you want, you remember when Jesus said, "Listen, if you're if you're in the in the in the in the military and you're going to be going to war, who would go to war without what? Well, count the cost. Maybe this isn't for you. Who would do that? Who would set out to build a great building and not count the cost? Because there's a cost. What's the cost? It's everything. The self has to be put to death, and that, as it turns out, is a our most difficult chore because our pride doesn't want us to die. We would rather twist and turn what the gospel actually has to say. Or you know what? I'm just going to ignore these things that he says. I'm saved. I'm all right. I'll find a place where people agree with me. You see, I think that one of the toughest places on the planet to have these kinds of commitments is right here in the buckle of the Bible belt because they can walk out, walk down the street, and get in another church. Churches are ubiquitous. They're on every corner. You start saying, The cost is this, that when Christ comes into your life, and again, I'm so grateful that he does it incrementally, right? This progressive sanctification, it's not a sanctification all at once, thankfully. We'd probably all walk away. No, but are you going to continue to follow as he continues to challenge you even though people are falling away and abandoning you left and right? The more serious you get about your faith, that's what you'll find. If nobody's falling away... Check how serious your faith is. See what he's trying to say to you. See what's been on your heart and deal with it. But you'll have less friends. That's less cards you have to send out at Christmas time. So what is a true disciple, a follower of Christ, looking for? First and number one, 
orthodox preaching and teaching. That should be the very first thing. It shouldn't be, do you have a wanna? Do you do, do you guys do VBS? Do you um do you have a nursery? Do you what songs do you sing? Is it hymns? Not too much of that contemporary stuff, right? Because I'm a reformed guy, so I'm a hymn guy. You know? Kind of hot in here this morning. Yeah, in more ways than one. It's evidenced by this orthodox preaching, which means orthodox means the right, the traditionally accepted from what is true, preaching and teaching. It's the evidence of that is in the fidelity to the scriptures. We're not picking and choosing. We're not cherry picking the Bible. Like Brother John Calvin, I preach sequentially through books of the Bible so we don't miss anything. But you're going to start seeing people fall away. That's what happens. It's not going to grow by throngs. Yeah, we want to come in here and hear about how sinful we are. Second, they want to see spiritual transformation. I mean legit transformation. I mean people that are filled with the love of Christ. One of the best things I hear by people that come and visit our, this beloved little church is that they see the love of Christ in the people. The people are welcoming, they're warm in a genuine way too. It's not this pasty-faced pretense, I want you to like me stuff. We want more people in our church. No, it's simply they filled with the love of Christ. Christ is at work in us, transforming us. That's what we want. These are things that somebody who really wants to follow Christ, regardless of the cost, that's the hard part. That's what we're after. That's what we want. If you're doing other things in service to the community, other ministries, absolutely, praise the Lord. But these primary things, third, and by the way, that's evidenced by the love of Christ in other people. You'll see the transformation in other people. They're not, by the way, we're, our teacher this morning was helping us understand what real hypocrisy is. They're not, these people are not one thing here and somebody completely different at home with the wife and kids. No, what you see is what you get. That's why you got to be ready not to be so popular, not to be so liked. But you're supposed to say, that's okay, because I'm already dead. That he might bring me to life. That he might live through me. And if I get in the way, the self of me, they can't see him. And people that are dead and blind, enemies of God, need to see Christ more than your words. They need to see him. What does he look like? I've been blind for 33 years in my case. What does he look like? It's a sham. It's a sham religion. It's a bunch of phonies, a bunch of hypocrites. No, there's real people that are really alive in Jesus Christ. And I saw them. I saw them. They're not people that are sneaking around behind the scenes with, like in Ezekiel 8 through 11, all of those chapters filled with Christ or with God taking Ezekiel and saying, come with me, draws him out of Babylon spiritually. I want you to see, son of man. I want you to see what they do in the privacy of their own imaginations. And he peels back the stone walls. I want you to dig through that wall. I want you to look at what's in their heart. This is my temple. 
Is that you? Is that me? God help us. Third, true worship. True worship. It's evidenced by the things people value most. It finds itself in complete accord with the scriptures. It's not, you know what, this is really cool. It'd be really cool if we did this. We'd get a bunch of people in here. It's evidenced by the things value most. I, I want what Jesus values most to be the things that he's telling me I should value most, don't you? Otherwise, why play a, a religious game? This is not what I refer to as a, s- a social club. Those are social clubs. Those aren't churches. It's all for social reasons. And so we see 1 John 2.19 helps us out. They went out from us. Why? They weren't of us. They're not making the commitments that we said to the Lord we're going to make. As hard as it is, as unpopular it is in the body of Christ, are these disciples so-called like the ones that turned away from Christ when it's like this is too much about him talking. And the things that he's saying, I am not, I don't even know if I agree with, I definitely don't feel good about it. I want to feel good. Didn't Jesus come to make us feel good? I was miserable. I needed somebody to save my life, to rescue me. I know that resonates with some of you out there. They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are not of us. People leave churches. And when they do, they're saying, I don't want what you're doing. Try your best, pray, exhaust yourself in seeking reconciliation, and they still, some, will go. So let's, now that we're done with the introduction, let's, um, I'm going to synthesize. Now see, that's numbers wrong too. It should be three gospel accounts because not all four um, have this miracle in it. The three gospel accounts of the walking on the water. When you add in, you, you, like I did last week with the feeding of the 5,000, so important to integrate the other gospel accounts because they've got wonderful additional information that help you fill out a bigger picture of what took place. Verse 16 in our text, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Matthew 14, 22 to 23. See if you think, see some things added here. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat. Oh, that, that's information, isn't it? And go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. And after that, he dis, after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. See, our account doesn't give that. See, John was well aware of the synoptics. All three Gospels of, that are referred to as the synoptics were written way before John writ, wrote his account. So they had been circling around for a long time. So he didn't feel the need to include all of the details because they're out there. But we need to look at them. 
because we're not back in their time. So when even came, he was there alone. Mark 6, 45 and 46, immediately he made his disciples get in the boat. So they both say that. They both say that he made his disciples get in the boat and go before him to the other side. And this includes to Bethsaida. So now we know where they were going to. So they're on the northeastern side of the Sea of Galilee. And he said, you need to get in the boat. By the way, the language here has the idea of a command and it, uh, and that there's a bit of rebellion in them maybe resistance they didn't really want to get in the boat but we can understand why if there's some 12 uh, 15 20 25,000 people that are convinced this is our king and maybe maybe he resisted at first that no you know, whatever because they decided at some point the text says in fi- in ch- uh, verse 15 that they wanted to take him by force so he probably, it makes sense to me anyway, that he would say to his disciples, you need to get in the boat. It's the only way you're going to stay safe. Get in the boat. I'll be all right. So that they're distracting him. They're all watching the disciples get on the boat, but there's nothing they can do about it. Remember, they walked to get there. They walked all the way around the northern part of the Sea of Galilee to meet him on the east side. As a matter of fact, some of them beat the boat there. Some th- three, four miles, something like that, a little more, if you're going up around on foot. So he gets him in the boat and he said, you need to go. You need to get in the boat. You need to take off. So there must have been some fuss about it, some degree, to some degree, because he's obviously, in the language, he's exerting his authority when it says he made his disciples get in the boat. They weren't willing. They weren't willing. And I believe it's because they were perceiving to take Jesus by force. And this thing was going to blow up. And those guys were going to be in jeopardy. Verse 18, the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. That's all we get from John. That's enough. Because in Matthew 14, 24, we read, But the boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in Mark 6, 47 to 48, first part. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea and he was alone on land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully for the wind was against them. There he is up on the mountain praying alone. And he sees them. The wind's contrary. They're rowing. It's night now. It's dark. And now the waves are blowing up. They're wondering if they're going to perish. He sees them, just like he sees you, same way. He's the God of seeing. That's El Roi. That's what it means. The God who sees. You have to get the metaphor as we go through, if you're going to get the full impact of what this should mean to us. He saw they were making headway painfully, Mark said. No doubt they were looking for Jesus. Where is he? He insisted that we go out in the boat. Now look, didn't he know this was going to happen? They're still trying to... It's almost pathetic, really, but we would probably be the same way. How little they understand about who he is and what he's come to do. And so they're just looking for him. 
But there he was. With his all, with his caring, all-seeing, compassionate eyes watching them struggle against the waves. Verse 19. When they had rowed the boat about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Well, I should say so. But I like what Matthew and Mark include. Matthew says, and in the fourth watch of the night he came to them. Friends, this is three to six o'clock in the morning. They've been fighting these waves all night. They're tired. Have you ever been tired and scared at the same time? It's, it's tough. It's one of the toughest nights to get through. And night even being a metaphor, again, a dark time in your life. You're looking for him and you can't see him. The darkness is intentional. He's at work. He's doing something. Keep looking. Keep praying. Don't lose hope. So they've been at it some seven, eight hours through the night against the wind. They're in a, into a headwind trying their best to go where he told them to go and they can't see him anywhere. But I love this part in Mark's account. It says the same thing about the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. And then this. I love, isn't this great? He meant to pass them by. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, how's it going? Isn't he awesome? He is incredible. I, he just amazes me. He meant to pass them by. Why else would it put it there if it wasn't Jesus making a point to his disciples in a very whimsical way, really? He is absolutely 100% fearless. There's zero fear in him. So he's enjoying himself. I would suggest it's speculative, but I think it's based on getting to know who Christ is. It's like when he asked Philip, gee, Philip, where are we going to get all the bread to feed all these people? Did he not know that? Well, you know, he knew he's the mathematician, the scientist, the calculator. Uh, if we had 200 denarii, we couldn't give everybody here even a crumb. Well, go and see. See what you got. He wanted to make absolutely sure that they were completely without their own resources. Do you get the metaphor? That's what he often does. Run you aground. That's what he's doing to his disciples. Walking by. You guys okay? You got this? I'll see it. Uh, Bethsaida. You guys okay? Wow. Wow. In Matthew's Gospel, again, chapter 14, verse 26, but the disciples saw him walking and they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Mark says he meant to pass them by, verse 49 of Mark 6, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. Same thing. They cried out, same thing, for they all saw him and were terrified. So verified in both of those accounts, they saw him. It must be a ghost because how can he walk on water? That's not possible. You're seeing the one that created water. He, he doesn't have to become a ghost to, like, what are you thinking? 
They're just not getting it. Verse 20, but he said to them, how wonderfully gracious, how wonderfully gracious. He says to them, it is I, do not be afraid. He immediately speaks to them. He immediately assuages their fear. He didn't mean to terrify them, but he did mean to challenge them. Do you think he likes us being terrified? I don't think he likes that. But I do believe from Scripture it is absolutely intentional to develop our what? Faith. Our faith. In Matthew, he says the same thing. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. In Mark 6, 51-52, And when he got into the boat, the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. That's what I mentioned earlier. They didn't get the feeding. We don't get it. So when you just, something is so profound, you just completely don't get it. And it's so like fantastic and in the abstract and enigmatic. You got to just put it aside, don't you? You just got to just put it out of your head. It'll drive you crazy. So they don't understand. They didn't understand the loaves. But then this part, but their hearts were hardened. There's an element of rebellion there. There's, there's, there's a degree to which they are actually resisting knowing what that meant. Matthew 14 adds this part of the story that you're familiar with that's not in the other two, in John or Mark, but you're familiar with the story. Here we go. Matthew 14, 28 to 33. Here comes Peter. And Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's like a child. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, uh, don't look at the wind. Don't look at your circumstances. Don't do it. If you look at the circumstances I orchestrated for a purpose in your life, you're going to sink. And he does. And what does he do? Again, gets them to the point where they have zero resource. He restores the whole issue of gravity that he invented and water that's not going to hold up a body. And he starts to sink. Look what, look what it says here. Peter gets out of the boat and he walked on the water, came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. If we miss the metaphors here, we missed a lot. Jesus admittedly reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of what? That's exactly what he's trying to build and strengthen. Because he is a man of little faith at this point. But he grows exponentially in his faith, doesn't he? Amazing. Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got in the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat, and this is limited to Matthew as well, the right response, they worshiped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. That's what he wants from us. Psalm 30, verse 5, 
We heard some 30 read this morning. We actually heard providentially this verse cited by our teacher first hour. Weeping may tarry for the night, but what? Joy comes with the morning. Verse 21. And we'll start bringing this in for a landing. Then they were glad to take him in the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Immediately, it's over. You're on the shore. You thought you weren't going to make it. You were going to die. You cried out. And suddenly, you're on solid ground. Sky's clear. The night's over. Sun's rising. So, I have some benefits for you from these miracle metaphors. Just to leave you with something. Again, some of them are a little bit longer. There's five of them, and we're going to go through them quick, but some of the sentences are, I wanted it to say what it needed to say, but I did work on being as concise as possible. So let's benefit from some of these miracle metaphors that we've seen. First of all, number one, we've talked about this a lot, Jesus feeds all those who are hungry that come to him by faith. Straightforward. Two, Jesus heals all those who are hurting when they turn to him in faith. Another spiritual metaphor. Three, life is like a voyage of the sea, as I mentioned earlier. Hard to row against the prevailing winds of providence. We're in a fallen world. It's the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's all that's against us. (laughs) The God of this world, ourselves, and this world. So we're rowing all night long, and sometimes it's dark. And sometimes the waves come, as number four says. Sometimes gale force winds whip up suddenly, wearing us down and terrifying us. It's dark. We look for Jesus, but we cannot see him. Yet he's there with his tender, loving, compassionate, all-knowing gaze fixed upon us. He's never taking his eyes off of you, ever. And they're the eyes of love, pure eyes that only want the best for you. They only want the best for you. But you have to have faith in believing. And fifth, the miraculous power of divinity in Jesus Christ. Here's what it should evoke if we get this story right. They should evoke reverential fear and awe in us that results in obedience to him, a strengthening of our faith in him, and a devout worship of him. When all these things happen in Matthew's account. What did it result in? They realized who was in the boat. They say who's in the boat, and they worship him. This truly is the Son of God. Right conclusion, isn't it? This is our life. The futility of it, the struggles that we have, the whole world groaning, as Romans 8 talks about, in futility. Matiates is the Greek word for futility. It has the idea of it's not fulfilling what it was intended to. You, you ever feel like that? That's what you feel like. You're, yourself, the, the world you're in, the circumstances you've got, it's just a struggle. You're rowing. You're rowing. And sometimes it gets dark. Sometimes the waves start lapping up over the gun walls. And you're ready to say, I, I, where are you? I can't see you right now. You appointed this? I, I, this is too hard. Where are you? Jesus, where are you? That's our life. 
There's these consistent prevailing winds that are the toughest. It's not so much the storms because they seem to have a shorter breadth even though they've got a deeper depth depth in terms of their intensity. But it's this every day going up against the prevailing winds of what you're trying to do in a right walk to follow Christ. It will be challenged. He brought the challenge. We're struggling to make progress in the right direction like they were. This metaphor is strong. The true Christian is not a fair-weather sailor. The winds are contrary to us, and often there are storms. The end purpose of these challenges is to make strong men and women of faith. That's their intention. People of virtuous character, Christ-like character is to come out of all of this that we suffer. Character of people that love him, follow him, worship him. When the skies are clear and sunny and when they're dark, and here they come. It's getting dark. How about that deal yesterday, that weather deal yesterday, if you were in it? It was amazing. And that's some, sometimes how these things hit us. It's like I'm looking, out, I'm looking out and things are hot and sticky like normal, and I'm in my study preparing yesterday afternoon. All of a sudden, it was like a tropical storm, wasn't it? I mean, it blew up. That, get that metaphor. He set the stage for us to look at that this morning. Don't you see? That's why this story is in here. For your benefit. So we're not fair-weather sailors. We don't just expect to sail. Sometimes Christians will give the kind of verbiage that indicate that you know that this wasn't supposed to be easy. Did you count the cost? You're an under-rower with me. You're in the bottom tier, and we're rowing. Man, we're rowing. We're rowing. We're rowing. We trust him. We're rowing. And when the skies are dark and winds harsh and the violent storms come, we trust. Trust in him. Some of you maybe have heard a phrase like this. It reminded me of this. That which does not defeat us only makes us stronger. That's the concept. I want to leave you with something one of my favorite commentators said from the 19th century, Alexander McLaren. Listen to him describe this. He does it better than I can. Summer sailing in fair weather amidst landlocked bays in blue seas and under calm skies may be all very well for triflers. But blown seas and storming showers are better if the purpose of the voyage be to brace us and call out our powers. You've got to put your shoulder to this one. If you're fussing now against the footman, how will you fare when the horsemen come? This darkness is nothing. Nothing. Back to McLaren. And so be thankful. If when the boat is crossing the mouth of some glen that opens upon the lake, a sudden gust smites the sails and sends you to the helm and takes all your effort to keep you from sinking. Do not murmur or think that God's providence is strange. That's, I'm sure, an allusion to 1 Peter 4.12. Don't think that these trials that are coming are as though there's something strange happening. 
they're at work in you. Or think that God's providence is strange because many and many a time when it is dark and Jesus has not yet come to us, the storm of wind comes down upon the lake and threatens to drive us from its course. Let us rather recognize him as the Lord who in love and kindness sends all the different kinds of weather, which, according to the old proverb, make up the full summered year, end quote. Got to take it all, count the cost, because it's going to be tough. If it hasn't been already, it's going to be tough. If he loves you, it's going to be tough. If he's doing something in you, like you said when you're a brand new Christian, I want this to happen, it's going to be tough going to rub right up against yourself right up against your flesh and he knows exactly how to do that in a contrary way so does the enemy the enemy knows where your weakness is can he read my mind he doesn't need to he's been around for a millennium he's been around for thousands of years he's seen people like you and i come and go for thousands of years and he's malevolently brilliant so there you have it you got Jesus' good intentions in you, yet you've got the enemy who knows exactly where your weaknesses are to tempt you. And yet God, since greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world, yet God allows that to happen. Spurgeon talks about him being a dog that's on God's leash. So we don't want to be like a dog, as Spurgeon said in another place, and snap at the stick that the Lord is using to smite us. It's not the stick's fault. It's what he referred to, Spurgeon, as the secondary agents. In Job's case, the Sabians, the Chaldeans. Who sent those to Job? Satan? You missed the point of the story if you thought that. Those were the Lord's appointments. Or he's not sovereign. It's just a white dog, black dog fight. They're both equal, like... The Jehovah's Witness think that Jesus and Satan are equal. Jesus Christ is God. Very God. I'm going to leave you with John 16.33, an encouragement from Christ. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, no matter how bad it gets. My ancestors in Scotland had to meet under trees, what they called open field conventicles, because the Anglicans were riding up on them to find them, the dragoons who were armed to take them off to prison for not worshiping like the Anglicans do. And they became what were referred to as armed conventicles because the men would wear firearms and they would resist We've been contending not even with the footmen. The horsemen are coming. Decide now. Count the cost now. Let's none of us be found playing games. This is one of the toughest areas in the world to make these decisions. You think about that and see if I'm not right. I've been here 24 years. It's absolutely been my experience. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. Why? 
I have overcome the world. In Mark 13, 13, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. He's telling us that straight up. No equivocation, no qualifiers. They're going to hate. They're going to turn away from you, as I was talking about in the beginning. They're going to turn away. If you follow him, they'll turn away because they hated him. If he was here again, they would crucify him. We would. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. For the sake of my name, they will hate you. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Make that choice now. Make it now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for challenging us in this powerful way. Lord, we, we would that it weren't this challenging, we, but we, when we think that, we don't understand the depths of depravity. We don't understand how the sinfulness of sin and how greatly we need you. We need you, O oh Lord. Forgive us. Forgive us for what we've made of this Christianity. Forgive us when we tried to determine for ourselves what it should look like and place you essentially in judgment, accepting some things and rejecting others. No, Lord. We want all of you. We want to follow you, even if it is like the apostles themselves and the martyrs after them to our death. There's rough treatment ahead. We sense that. We forecast the weather. We can forecast our times. And you are calling your church. And you are bidding us to count the cost. I pray, O oh Lord, that the church, the true church, with its true disciples, would rise. That there would be a great revival. That they would rise up as though out of a grave. Show this how strong strong in prayer, strong in the word of God, not without any fear of man, but simply a love for Jesus Christ and a commitment to him that we will stand with him. Oh, let us not be like Peter, who when he made that statement denied you three times. So we need you. We need your grace in order to stand on that day when surely we will face these challenges. Oh, indeed, we've been made too comfortable in many ways. Help us to be a readied army of yours, having counted the cost, because we want to see you glorified, and we want to follow you all the way to glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.